Section 13 of The Ring and the Book, an Interpretation, by Francis Bickford Hornbrook. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13. The Book and the Ring. The Book and the Ring is a fulfilment of the promise of the poet in the first book that, after he has led his readers to the summit from which the wide prospect round may be seen, he will lead them back to Mother Earth. He has made the voices speak again, as once they spoke while excitement was at its highest, and while all hearts were revealing their inmost thought and motive. Now he ends with the recital of the gossip and chatter of the street. What we have in the book and the ring is the commonplace of contemporary life. The story is, practically, at an end, with the death of Guido, the chief actor in it. What had once filled the vision of men and women had fallen and faded from their view. What was once seen grows what is now described, then talked of, told about, a tinge the less in every fresh transmission, till it melts, trickles in silent orange or wan grey across our memory, dies and leaves all dark, and presently we find the stars again. After February the 22nd, 1698, the poet gives four reports concerning those the days killed or let live. The first is a letter of a Venetian gentleman, then in the city of Rome, from which we learn how the decision of the Pope was viewed by the people of consideration there. The visitor explains that the Pope is tottering on the verge of the grave, and that men are betting on his probable successor. He seemed to be doing very well while he could go out of doors and saunter by the river, but confinement within doors, on account of the rain, caused fainting fits which only his determination to hold a jubilee a second time enables him to overcome. Guido, until within two days, had seemed safe. Everyone in Rome was in his favour. But the prejudices of the Pope, his passion for France, got the better of him, and he persisted in the butchery. He seemed to be moved by his regard for the mob, and rebuffed Martinez, who came to plead for Guido's pardon. More than all this, he ordered the execution to take place where it could be seen by all. Two old friends of Guido, Acciaioli and Panciatichi, had been with him during his last hours, to dispose him for ending well, and had been perfectly successful in their endeavour. Guido appeared in his car, so intrepid and nonchalant, that all had admired him. As the procession moved on, a car ran over a man and killed him, and bitter were the outcries of the mob against the Pope. A beggar, lame from birth, recovered the use of his leg through prayer of Guido as he glanced that way. At the scaffold, after the hanging of the four peasants, which was hardly noticed, Guido harangued the multitude, begged forgiveness on the part of God and fair construction of his act from men, whose suffrage he entreated for his soul, suggesting that we should forthwith repeat a pater and an ave with the hymn Salve Regina Celi, for his sake. Which said, he turned to the confessor, crossed and reconciled himself with decency. 
then rose up, as brisk knelt down again, bent head, adapted neck, and, with the name of Jesus on his lips, received the fatal blow. When the headsman showed his head to the populace, strangers were much disappointed because he was not as tall as he had been reported to be, and his face was not one to please a wife. His friends said his unpleasing appearance was due to his costume. He wore the dress he did the murder in. A second report appears in the letter of Don Giacinto Arcangeli, the advocate who defended Guido, to a fellow advocate at Florence, in which he informs him that he had almost succeeded in securing a reprieve for Guido. It is to this advocate, Cencini, that we owe the book out of which the ring of poetry was made. In his letter, Archangeli tells his correspondent that his justificative points had arrived too late to benefit his client, now with God. The court had decided, in spite of all his pleas, against him, and as the Pope had judged it expedient to dispense with Guido's plea of privilege, he had been executed with his four companions. However, he had commiseration and respect in his decease from universal Rome, the nice and cultivated everywhere. The result, Archangeli feels, must be due to his inability to set the valid reasons forth. On the next leaf, he bids his friend show to others what he had just written on the other side, but to keep what he now says for himself. Cincini's pleas had come too late, but, after all, nothing would have availed against the wish of an old man to see one younger than himself die before him. His superb defence of Guido would remain, while ineptitude and obstinacy would go with the Pope to the tomb. Besides, all will understand and stigmatise the motives which led him to change the place of execution. He must now turn to another case, but before the mail goes, he must say that his boy, godson of Cencini, had enjoyed the sight of the execution. He relates with gusto the reply which his son had made to a lady who twitted him with the remark that his father's eloquence could not be depended upon, as heretofore, for help. He finally comforts himself with the assurance that the Pope thinks that his was the real victory, if learning and eloquence could avail to gainsay fact. A letter of Bettinius, the advocate of Pompilia, follows. He has gained his case and made truth triumph, but he is dissatisfied. He complains that, as usual, he had the plain truth to plead. Guido, like the poltroon he was, had fully confessed his crime, and there was really the end of the matter. His rival can triumph in the fact that in spite of all difficulties, he nearly succeeded in getting his client off free. This he knew Archangeli and Rome would say. I looked that Rome should have the natural gird at advocate with case that proves itself. I knew Archangeli would grin and brag. But what say you to one impertinence might move a stone? That monk, you are to know, that barefoot Augustinian, whose report of the dying woman's words did detriment to my best points it took the freshness from, that meddler preached to purpose yesterday at San Lorenzo as a winding up of the show which proved a treasure to the church. Out comes his sermon, smoking from the press. 
its text, Let God be true, and every man a liar, and its application, this, the longest winded of the paragraphs, I straight unstitch, tear out, and treat you with. In this sermon, the impertinent monk declared that the case of Pompilia was by no means an illustration of the truth that innocence always prevails. Many, as innocent as she, had not been plucked from the world's calumny. So it might have been with Pompilia, and so, for a time, it was, had not events proved and proclaimed her a pure white soul. Even law, appointed to defend the just, failed to discern her character, and, if allowed, would have caused her to be classed among the vilest of her kind. It was only the true instinct of an old good man which had seen and proclaimed what she really was. All this, he declares, demonstrates the worthlessness of human fame. The sermon provokes Bertinius very much, and he exclaims, Didst ever touch such ampulosity as the monk's own bubble, let alone its spite? His sermon itself was made for the fame which he professed to flout. As for Pompilia, about whom the preacher boasted, he will show what law can do for her. The monastery of the Convertites is entitled to the estate of every sinner who dies in its care. Now Pompilia was in its care, and therefore a sinner. And although the court declared Guido guilty, I did not pronounce her innocent. Bortinius, as attorney for the monastery, will bring suit against her as a person of dishonest life, and asks his correspondent to send him the judgment of the court at Arezzo, clenched again by the Grand Ducal signature, wherein Pompilia is convicted, doomed, and only destined to escape through flight the proper punishment. Send me the peace, I'll work it. And this foul-mouthed friar shall find his Noah's dove that brought the olive back turn into quite the other sooty scout, the raven, Noah first put forth the ark, which never came back, but ate carcasses. No adequate machinery in law? No power of life and death in the learned tongue? Methinks I am already at my speech, startle the world with, Thou, Pompilia, thus? How is the fine gold of the temple dim? We are told, however, that Bottinius was disappointed in his expectation. Six months later, the old Pope, who still lived on, proclaimed the perfect fame of dead Pompilia and forbade the Convertite nuns to interfere in any way with her representative in the care of her estate. Next year the Pope died, and the poet adds, If he thought doubt would do the next age good, tis pity he died unapprised what birth his reign may boast of, be remembered by terrible Pope, too, of a kind, Voltaire. This really ends the story. Nothing more can be learned of Gaetano, the son of Guido and Pompilia. All that can be found is a record of a public attestation, which a sister of Guido moved the authorities of Arezzo to give to the right of the Franceschini to men's reverence. This record, in nearly the worst Latin ever writ, declares that, Since antique time whereof the memory holds the beginning, to this present hour, the Franceschini ever shone, and shine, still in the primary rank, supreme amid the lustres of Arezzo, 
proud to own in this great family the flag-bearer, guide of her steps, and guardian against foe, as in the first beginning, so to-day. One would like to know whether Gaetano, of such perfect parentage, born of love and hate, lived or died, what were his fancies when a man, whether he was like his father or mother. Of all this we know nothing, and the poem ends with these lines. Such then the final state of the story. So did the star Wormwood, in a blazing fall, frighten awhile the waters, and lie lost. So did this old woe fade from memory, till after, in the fullness of the days, I needs must find an ember yet unquenched, and breathing, blow the spark to flame. It lives, if precious be the soul of man to man. So, British public, who may, like me yet, marry and amen, learn one lesson hence, of many, which whatever lives should teach. This lesson, that our human speech is naught, our human testimony false, our fame and human estimation, words and wind. Why take the artistic way to prove so much? Because it is the glory and good of art that art remains the one way possible of speaking truth, to mouths like mine, at least. How look a brother in the face and say, Thy right is wrong, eyes hast thou, yet art blind, thine ears are stuffed and stopped, despite their length, and, oh, the foolishness thou countest faith. Say this as silverly as tongue control. The anger of the man may be endured. The shrug, the disappointed eyes of him are not so bad to bear. But here's the plague, that all this trouble comes of telling truth, which truth, by when it reaches him, looks false, seems to be just the thing it would supplant, nor recognisable by whom it left while falsehood would have done the work of truth. But art, wherein man nowise speaks to men, only to mankind, art may tell a truth obliquely, do the thing shall breed the thought, nor wrong the thought, missing the immediate word. So may you paint your picture, twice show truth, beyond mere imagery on the wall. So, note by note, Bring music from your mind, deeper than ever in Beethoven dived. So write a book shall mean beyond the facts, suffice the eye, and save the soul beside. And save the soul. If this intent save mine, if the rough ore be rounded to a ring, render all duty which good ring should do, and failing grace succeed in guardianship, might mine but lie outside thine, lyric love, thy rare gold ring of verse, the poet praised, linking our England to his Italy. End of chapter 13